For the New York State AFL-CIO, I'm Darcy Wells, and this is Union Strong. We are Union Strong. Union Strong. We are Union Strong. We are Union Strong. Union Strong. Union Strong. Union Strong. Union Strong. Union Strong. The adult-use cannabis market is open for business in New York State, and it's creating tens of thousands of good-paying jobs. If you're considering a career in this emerging industry, or maybe you're just curious about the career opportunities, and this podcast is for you. On this podcast, we're going to take a deep dive into the Cannabis Workforce Initiative, or CWI. It's a partnership between the Workforce Development Institute and the New York State School of Industrial and Labor Relations at Cornell University. And we're going to find out what they're offering to New Yorkers in the adult-use cannabis market, right from seed to sale. Joining me on the program is Esther Bigler, who leads the Labor and Employment Law Program at Cornell's School of Industrial and Labor Relations, and she's co-chair of the Cannabis Workforce Initiative. And David Serrano, who is from the Workforce Development Institute and is the Cannabis Workforce Initiative Project Manager. So welcome to both of you, and thank you for coming on the program with us. Thank you for having us. So, David, I kind of wanted to start with you because um, I already jumped on to one of your first trainings uh, a few days ago, and you're really passionate about this. So can you talk a little bit about how you got to this moment? What is your background that brings you to this moment of making sure that we have this workforce for this emerging industry and we have uh, people learning about these new opportunities? Absolutely. Thank you. So uh, I've been in the cannabis world uh, for over 25 years, uh, started as uh, a consumer and and then a legacy operator and advocate uh, for many years. And uh, I was I joined the military at 19 and uh, got into human resources, workforce development, essentially for the Navy uh, and specialized in that for six years. So I like to think that, you know, my my brain at a very young age was configured uh, to do this type of work. And as soon as I got out of the military over 11 years ago, I came right back into the cannabis world. Uh, in 2013, I chased legalization to Colorado, where I operated as a consultant, helping folks write out their business plans, apply for licenses, uh, get into the job descriptions and standard operating procedures for for all of the types of businesses inside the supply chain that would be the cultivations, extractions, manufacturing, and retail, um, all of which I've done personally uh, on my own and and thought that you know at that time that I can be you know kind of bridge the the human resources compliance background that the military you know trained me on and my and, and my enthusiasm and and passion for the plant. Um, to support the industry, and I've been doing that um, ever since. Well, thank you. And Esta, I know uh, with the um, ILR school, you're going to bring to this um, opportunity for people really a look at the labor rights of the workers, right, and also um, the employer's legal responsibilities. Can you talk a little bit about that? So I am, what I'd like to say sometimes, a recovering union labor lawyer. I've been involved in worker rights and employment of people fairly and equitably for my entire career. 
uh, as an attorney. And so I came to Cornell and began teaching labor and employment law. And one of the things that became clear to me in 2008 was the issue of mass incarceration and people being incarcerated, principally men of color, young men of color, uh, and Latinos. And what you saw was that young white men were not being incarcerated, that the racial disparity in the way the drug laws were being implemented became clear that that was a new civil rights issue. So I began working in the area of educating people who have been incarcerated or who have been involved in the criminal legal system about what their rights are, and also educating employers about the value of hiring people who have been involved in the criminal legal system. You get wonderful employees. We're talking about a new industry. We look around the country and we see A, people of color are not employed in that industry. They don't own the industry. And so what the framers of MRTA wanted was a fair and equitable workplace with the generation, the generations that work in this industry to be able to develop and generate wealth that they can pass from one generation to the next. So I bring that piece um, to the table, whether you're working as a cultivator, whether you're working in a dispensary, um, you have a right to have your voice heard, you have a right to be treated with respect, and the employer gets good workers if, in fact, they have that kind of a workplace. So let's talk a little bit about, um, you know, how do you get here? I mean, this is a new industry, so you've got to figure out who, what are the jobs that are going to be out there, right? What kind of training do people need? I mean, I'm, I'm just wondering how you even start that process before you get to this training part. How do you gather that information of what we're going to need to have this be a successful industry in New York State? Well, one of the things we did as we started as this collaboration between the Workforce Development Institute and the New York State School of Industrial and Labor Relations at Cornell was we did a survey. And it was a national survey to try to understand what were the skills that employers across the country were looking for. And also, what were the obstacles in hiring? What were the obstacles in terms of hiring people who've been involved in the criminal legal system? And that survey and the results of the survey has informed the kind of training that we put together in our very first Cannabis Career Exploration and Worker Rights Certificate Program. David, with using your knowledge and expertise, I mean, what is it that people can expect out of this training? What are you going to be training them uh, to do what, when they walk away from this program? What knowledge will they have? Right. So uh, first, you know, we needed to kind of look at what all of the jobs are and describe that to folks. Folks need to you know, kind of come to a decision on their own. What what interests them? What kind of skills that they have in their background um, that they're currently using or have used in the past that maybe match or maybe their interests, or, you know, maybe they have no background in and they want to be a cultivator and they're trying to figure out how uh, or what does the cultivator do? Not necessarily um, how they do their job or what skills they're deploying day to day, but more so this very general what is a cultivator? What is a, a cultivation tech one versus a cultivation tech three? What is a post-production uh, technician, you know, folks that are drying and harvesting the plant? So giving folks a bearing on the various jobs and career pathways in the industry is our first mission. 
um, destigmatizing or, or as we say, demystifying uh, the industry. So um, we we find that you know in our conversations with employers, they they're having a hard time finding qualified you know individuals to come in and do the job. And it's not to say that there's a lack of qualified folks in their community. What we find, what we find is that for a, per, a prime example, you know, somebody with maybe you know five, seven years of plumbing experience, never worked in the cannabis industry. They they are looking on the job sites and they see a job for for cannabis. Although they may have an interest in working in the industry, they pass it. They say, "Oh no, that's cannabis. I don't know anything about that." Well, the truth is, is they're probably one of the most qualified people because there's a lot of water moving in those spaces. And so what we're doing as an initiative is exposing that, uh, demystifying what that looks like. So we do that in a variety of ways. We we have uh, speaking campaigns where we bring together panels and, and instructors and ourselves. We, we go into community spaces and we, we talk about what those jobs are and, and what they look like. We, we bring in film crews uh, to the spaces so that they can film what the spaces look like, what the workers are doing with their hands, what they're wearing. Uh, we even do interviews with those workers. How did they prepare to go to work? Um, what do they do when they get to work? And, and you know, what are their favorite and things about the job? What are their least favorite things about the job? And then we share that. And, and so that's the, that's the first step of all of this is, you know, the demystifying the, the jobs and, and, you know, showcasing all of the career pathways later on uh, in, in, in our, in, in, in our mission, we'll, we'll start to dive deeper into those areas and, and get into what are some of those skills and uh, that, that folks are, are deploying every day into the space. Um, but it's, it's, it's incremental, uh, you know, folks don't know what they don't know. And, and so we, it's our, it's our job currently to, to expose what, what the industry uh, workers are doing and, and, and what are some of the, the job descriptions and qualifications for that. And I mean, I know promoting and supporting um, social equity is a big part of this. And also to have these be good, you know, stable, family-sustaining jobs. So, Esther, I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about when you speak about labor rights and labor peace. Explain how that's such an important part of all of this. One of the major components of the law, and I have to say that the law was really lobbied for dramatically by RWDSU 338 and the State Federation of Labor, played a major role in this law coming to fruition and its emphasis on social equity and social justice was adding an LPA, which is a labor peace agreement. What the labor peace agreement requires is that for someone to get a license to be an employer, and I want to be clear, only employers need licenses. Not You do not need a license to work in the industry. Um, to get a license, you have to have first signed an LPA. What is that? It's essentially a neutrality agreement that you sign with a bona fide union. And in that agreement, you agree that you allow your workers to decide whether they want to be organized or not. And so the requirement that someone sign an LPA just means that you agree to be neutral and the union agrees that it won't strike or boycott. Um, so that it really is a reciprocal arrangement between the employer and the union. It does not mean that automatically the union is there because the workers have to decide that that's what they want. 
it doesn't mean that a collective bargaining agreement is imposed on you. It means that if the union is sought and the employees decide they want to have a union and be represented by it, then the union sits down with the employer and negotiates a contract based on that company and the workers who work there. So that's what an LPA does. It really allows workers to have a voice and it protects the employer in the sense of not having you know, a strike or a boycott. Let me go back to David for a second. So David, people aren't going to a place in a classroom, right? This is all being done virtually? Actually, we, we are deploying a number of methods to engage the community. You know, we're, first of all, our, our mission is to support the communities that have been most impacted by the prohibition of cannabis. And, and when we're talking about this particular community, we have to recognize that not, not everybody is going to learn a, not everybody's going to learn the same way. Mm-hmm. B, not everybody has the same resources or time uh, to, to be in an in-person or in class. So we meet people where they're at. We're, we're, we're actively engaging com- communities across the state, uh, from New York City to, you know, Western, uh, Western New York via the Hudson Valley and, and the capital region and central New York, looking at communities that have higher rates of disproportionate arrest and, and engaging them through street team campaigns and, and meeting them at the bus stops and at the train stations and handing them flyers and, and directing them towards you know, an event that's happening in their community or to an online event. Uh, those online events, uh, they can be on demand uh, or live. So there's a number of ways that uh, folks can engage us online. And, you know, we, we do have a learning management system that we brought up at the end of last year. And uh, this year, uh, as, as Esther mentioned, and, you know, we're launching a, a 10-week uh, certificate course, um, which is live. So folks can jump on the internet and, and they can ask questions in person. But at the same time, uh, we're we're in communities, you know, launch, you know, doing live events in classroom spaces. In uh, just uh, a, 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 about a month and a half ago, we were doing a, a cannabis plant and terpology course, worker rights uh, 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 class in in an old uh, in an old post office in the Bronx. And 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 you know, at the same time, uh, just a few weeks before that, we were uh, in a in an old YMCA in Buffalo. And and so we're we're looking at multiple ways of distributing the information and, and educating the, the community. So what kind of interest has there been so far? Well, there's quite a bit. And so I, I'll, I'll, I'll touch on the numbers. Uh, so uh, today uh, we have reached over 10,000 uh, citizens in the state of New York uh, from wow. again, from New York City to, to Buffalo. Uh, on the in, in the current course, we have over 1,600 folks now registered. Uh, the first class um, we had uh, about 1,300, and since the first class, we got another 300 registrants wow. in just the last two days. And and that number is going to continue to climb because there is certainly uh, an interest in these 
in these jobs and in these careers. I saw the um, video that you have uh, that kind of gives an overview of the industry. And I think that's really helpful because it is hard to, you know, imagine the different kind of jobs. And I remember it stuck out to me, like you said, people who have skills in plumbing or even, you know, you need accountants. You need just such a broad spectrum of different um, workers. So, um, Esther, talk to me a little bit about the, um, I know a big part of that, too, is kind of giving people a background about how we got here and, and how the, the um, drug laws evolved. Um, talk to me a little bit about why that's so important for people to understand. Well, I think it's important for people to understand, one, because as David said, in part of our training, what we try to do is destigmatize cannabis. So um, people are worried about it. And so if you understand that, in fact, the laws were passed uh, without a real relationship to the issue of what cannabis can or cannot do. So, you know, it was um, declared illegal under the Controlled Substances Act in 1970. It's a Schedule One substance. And as a Schedule One substance, it's put in the same class as heroin and opium and ecstasy. Um, and says that it has no medicinal value. Well, we know for centuries, cannabis has been used and has medicinal benefits. Then we had Rockefeller follow suit in our state and we had the Rockefeller drug laws, which had minimum sentencing requirements. So a judge could not take anything into account, had to at least give that minimum. That law was uh, repealed in 2009, but it did terrible damage. Again, saying that cannabis was a gateway drug and that it would lead to uh, you becoming a drug addict, which, of course, is, is not the case. And now with the, you know, the Compassionate Care Act of 2014, we finally recognized in this state, in this state, that cannabis has tremendous medicinal properties. For example, it's well known that it's now used for people who have cancer and have chemotherapy. It really is important for people who are suffering, and it makes a major difference in people's lives. And then, of course, we had MRTA, which is really decriminalized it. It said to the world that in New York State, it said to the world that this was a legal drug. It was a drug that people could use and that it actually changed the labor law in our state, saying that employees cannot be discriminated against for using cannabis, that it is, if you use it on, you know, Sunday, it has no impact on what happens in your job, you know, on Monday or Tuesday. And it, it is made clear that this is an adult use drug. Now you have to be 21 to use it. Okay, very good. So, David, let me just um, wrap up with um, you. Like, what would your message be to people then? I would imagine people who are interested have gotten past the stigma part or they wouldn't be right trying to figure out what the training and job opportunities are. But what do you want them to know um, about what you're doing with the Cannabis Workforce Initiative? Um, what's your message to them? You know, stay, stay connected to the, the industry. Learn as much as you can. Uh, there are uh, there are free resources. Uh, the Cannabis Workforce Initiative is a no charge, no cost uh, resource for the community, and you know we're we're trying to uh, we're trying our best to make ourselves uh, present and available in in all of these uh, you know uh, impacted communities across the state in a multitude of ways. Um, engage us, engage our platforms on Instagram, on Facebook, on on LinkedIn. 
so that you can see when when events are going to happen locally in your community and 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 you know don't don't be afraid to submit an application because you've never worked in the cannabis industry submit it uh, employers are very happy to train folks you know there there are a lot of uh trainings you know that are coming to light now but for many years uh, the employers had had no support outside of their outside of their facilities to to train their employees. So they've taken that upon themselves to do. And there's a, an innate recognition that, you know, they're that folks aren't going to have a lot of, you know, industrial cannabis experience. And so they take it upon themselves to to train internally. And and so figure out what you want to do first. Let's see that, you know, CWI, we can help you figure out. Uh, what what role or, or pathway to take in one of our surveys in our first class, we saw 50% of, of over, we had about 600 and uh, 650 plus students live on our class. 50% uh, of them initially had no idea what they wanted to do in the industry. We saw that by the time the class dropped, it went from uh, finished, the, that number dropped from 50% to 35%. That's our mission, you know, so you know, I, I say keep coming, learn um, and figure out what opportunity, figure out what all of the opportunities are and then figure out where you might want to fit in that space. And and if if you try something and it doesn't work, there's so many more opportunities to keep, you know, and, you know, keep coming back and and we'll and we'll work to to show showcase all of those opportunities. Well, I know, um, Esther, let me just wrap with you then the importance of keeping this training going um, because, you you know, there's more of a demand and it's going to be expanding and that takes funding. Can you talk to us a little bit about that? How is all this training funded? Well, our training is being funded by New York State. We received a grant from New York State. The New York State Legislature gave us $2.5 million last year to ramp up and begin this training. And as David made clear just a minute ago, this is just the beginning of this industry. If you think about it as almost a triangle, we're really at the bottom of the triangle. And we're looking at the New York State having 30 to 50,000 new jobs in this industry. And so the need for our training um, is just going to keep increasing as more licenses are given out, as the Office of Cannabis Management's regulations become finalized. There are now many regulations that are waiting for public comment. And so the fact that it's free, because New York State is investing in its population, working with two major organizations in the state, where both nonprofits, Cornell University is a nonprofit, WDI is a nonprofit, our goal is education, not lining our pockets. So it is this really this grant from the state saying to the to our New Yorkers, there's a lot of opportunity here. Figure out where you'll fit in, figure out whether you need additional training, um, and join us in this growing new industry, which I'm hoping will be diverse, will be equitable. We will see women, we will see people of color, and that New York State will do it better than any of the states that have come before us. 
Well, it is really an exciting time to see all of this happening, and and we appreciate the expertise that the two of you are bringing uh, to the this new emerging industry, and we certainly want to see it be successful. So we're going to do whatever we can to make sure that this training continues because it is so so vital and so important. So Esther Bigler, thank you very much for coming on the program today. I appreciate it, and David Serrano, thank you as well. Joining me now is Liz O'Neill, who is our Communications and Campaigns Coordinator here at the New York State AFL-CIO. Liz, thank you for being here. Thanks, Darcy. So you and I were on the other day uh, taking a look at some of the training, one of the first ones, I think it was, one of the virtual trainings, and it was really impressive, wasn't it, when they started talking about all the different jobs that are available? Yeah, it's really breathtaking how expansive the industry is. I mean, just jobs that you wouldn't even think about. I mean, of course, there's bud tenders and growers, you know, the traditional jobs that you would think about, but they also need electricians for all the lighting and, you know, plumbers for the water and human resources people. So it's really a lot of opportunity there. And to keep this going, we know there's going to be tens of thousands of jobs created. And um, that's something we were talking about right at the end of the interview with ESTA, is that the funding is going to be key. Uh, to keep this going. So that's a big part of what we're trying to do here at the New York State AFL-CIO, along with our affiliate local uh, 338 with RWDSU, is to keep that going. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Dave said it really well um, when we were chatting. Um, this None of this happens without funding. So getting that in the budget is going to be really important. It's going to be a really, uh, these are going to be good family-sustaining jobs. And um, this training is just invaluable. And so if people want to learn more, we'll have links in our show notes so that they can get involved. And, and I would encourage anybody, if you're ever thinking about something like this or you're just curious, to go on there and take a look. Definitely. Thank you, Liz. Thanks, Darcy. This has been a production of the New York State AFL-CIO. Our president is Mario Salento. Our secretary-treasurer is Terry Melvin. We're a federation of 3,000 unions representing 2.5 million union members, retirees, and their families with one goal, to raise the standard of living and quality of life of all working people. We keep New York State unions strong by fighting for better wages, better benefits, and better working conditions. For more information on the labor movement in New York, visit nysaflcio.org. Until next time, stay union and stay strong.